Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us, and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now, to the show. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Decent People podcast. I'm your host, Matt Lysing, and today I'm joined by Giorgio Constantino. He might be a name you've not heard very much of, but it is a name you should get to know because behind the scenes, he's doing some of the coolest stuff in the NFT space that I know of. A lot of it's in the music uh, area. He helped uh, Eminem buy a Bored Ape Yacht Club, and he also helped uh, broker the deal for uh, the Wu-Tang Clan album, Once Upon a Time in Shaolin, to to, uh, be bought by Pleaser Dow. So... um, Gio, how you doing, man? It's great to see you. Doing great, man. Thanks so much for having me. Great to, yeah. uh, great to see you again. Yeah. So we just met recently in LA. We were at uh, a burger tasting for uh, a project called uh, Burger Boy, which is by Brad Miller and Luke Tabbitt. Uh, they are, they're, they're dipping into the NFT market with like, they want to cross the culinary world with like cryptocurrency and, and NFTs. And I'm telling you, if you are in Los Angeles and get, can get a hold of a burger boy, they are fantastic. Uh, I, am, I am a bit of a burger snob being from here. Uh, it is LA is the burger capital of uh, the country, in my opinion. And man, his burger blew me away. So it's a very serious burger. Yeah, that was a really fun night. Um, so, Gio, you're on the younger side, like a lot of people in crypto. How, how old are you, actually? Uh, I am 27. Amazing. So take us back and let's start at the beginning. Um, where, did, did you, where did you grow up and what, what did your parents do and what, what was your early life like? Yeah, so I uh, was born in the Tampa Bay area. Um, my parents are Greek immigrants from the island of Cyprus. Um, they came here when they were like 18. They met actually in Florida. Um, but like most Greeks, they were in the restaurant business. Um, and I think that was that was probably my destiny too, but uh, I decided it wasn't for me. But uh, I moved from Tampa to Chicago when I was about 15, finished up high school there, and then started like really diving into the music industry because for the first time, like having grown up in like a small town in Florida, like I had access to culture, like living near Chicago, like concerts, festivals. Um, and I just started like handing out flyers and trying to get involved however I could. I mean, I was still really young at the time, um, but started meet, like meeting people in the music industry and, you know, interacting and going out with people and trying to learn like just the, the ropes of the, the, of, the, of the music industry. And it got to a point where I started like helping out and um, booking concerts and picking up DJs from the airport and uh, just starting to play a bigger and bigger role in in the local scene there in Chicago and also like Milwaukee, which was super close uh, nearby and just kind of worked my way up and, you know, had a good track record with the, um, with the concerts I was throwing, but 
you know, we got it like a, a couple dubs that I booked that like ended up losing money. And I was like, well, I don't like this feeling. I thought he could only make money. Um, so I started getting into just like different things outside of promotions that I thought like could be, could be lucrative. I, I started getting into management. Uh, I was still in college at the time. So I was uh, going to class like throughout the day, but found myself like not paying attention in, in class and just like actually trying to like run a business uh, and had a couple, couple management clients that started doing really well. And uh, long story short, I ended up just dropping out of college and moving to LA and never looked back. And here we are. I see a guitar behind you. Do you play as well? No, I don't play the guitar. I picked it up about twice. Um, but it's there because people like you will ask me about it and it'll pressure me into actually picking it up and learning it one day. Yeah, that's a good idea. I, I like that. I got like a 50% off discount from Fender and I was like, ah, I'll buy a guitar. <laughs> yeah. Um, what was it about music that drew you? Was it like, I mean, I know you mentioned that uh, it was a change in culture and a, and a change in access, you know, to like shows and had you always loved music, but just were kind of starved for it in, in Florida and then like Chicago opened that up for you or what, what was it more like? I think it was, um, yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a music producer and I had like a, I even had like a studio in like my, my house with all this gear that I had like saved up money to buy. And my mom was like a, a singer and, you know, she was, she was like traveling the country, like singing like Greek music and stuff. Um, and my dad is just like kind of much more of a businessman. So I think after like a, you know, a few months or maybe a couple of years actually of like trying to actually produce music, I was like, you know what, I'm really like not that good at this. Um, and maybe I could have gotten good at it, but I realized that like, I was so much more passionate about just like the business side of it. Like, I felt like that was like an, like an art form of its own that like, if you could master it, you could be, you know, pretty pretty successful with so I started gravitating a lot more towards like the music business um and started like promoting shows and then you know eventually made my way into management and did that for you know the, been doing that for the past like eight years now maybe nine yeah so um what was it like coming to LA from Chicago in the management business was it a whole new world and it's just a lot bigger pond basically yeah, I mean, basically when I was, um, I mean, when I was in Chicago, I, I kind of like, I felt like I had hit the ceiling as far as like what I could accomplish there, you know, like I already kind of knew everybody. And once I moved to LA, it was like a whole new pond. Like you said, it was like, I was suddenly a very, 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 very small fish. Um, but it was, uh, it was exciting because when I moved here, I was like, I think I was about 18 years old. And, you know, just left school, trying to find some work. Um, it was cool because it was a new challenge and it was a new, new, like, hill to be conquered, I guess. What were you, um, I'm assuming you weren't paying the bills yet by, by, by representing people. Did you have some, some jobs in there uh, to, to get you on, like, get your feet under you? No, I mean, I, uh, management was actually paying the bills. Um, that was the reason why I decided to to move because I was like, you know what, I can actually, I mean, it was it was tight for sure, but, you know, it got to a point where I was like, I think I can actually pull this off. But within, you know, three months, I ended up just getting a job at a management company. Um, you know, I was independent prior to that. And I just ended up 
teaming up with a good group of guys in LA. They were managing like the Black Eyed Peas and um, Afrojack and Wolfgang Gardner and a bunch of other like dance music artists. So I teamed up with them and worked there for, um, you know, a few years. And it was, um, it was, it was great, like learning experience for sure. Yeah. That's awesome. And what, what year are we talking about here? Roughly. I moved to LA, uh, January of 2015. So I'd say I probably started working with, um, the undocumented management guys in 20, like mid 2015. Okay. Like probably four or five months after I moved. And had you, found crypto yet was that something that you were interested in uh, already yeah i mean i actually found crypto before i moved to la when i was in um chicago uh i was still super young so i you know was working out in nightlife but like i actually wasn't old enough to be in any of those clubs um i had to get a fake id and i the only place i knew where to get it was on the silk road um so that was my first Bitcoin experience. I think when I bought Bitcoin the first time, it was like 60, 70 bucks. Yeah. Um, and bought a bunch of fake IDs just to have them. And I mean, that was definitely like, a, you know, it was a really necessary part for like just being able to experience what I experienced and have access to the rooms that I was going into. But yeah, I got the fake ID, moved to LA. Everything was good. And about like, I want to say a month before my 21st birthday, the fake ID gets taken away. And I'm like, shit, like I need to get another fake ID. And I went to go buy Bitcoin again. And like Bitcoin was like a thousand bucks that time. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? Um, so I had to like, you know, I started doing some research and I was like, okay, well, this isn't just like some funny money that like you spend on nefarious uh, activities and purposes. Like there's actually maybe something here. And I started really like diving back in. I mean, I didn't have the means really to buy Bitcoin like hand over fist at that time, but I started keeping, keeping an eye on it and, you know, tracking Ethereum and, and seeing what was really happening there. And around 2017 is when I, when I really started getting into, uh, into crypto, like from an investment standpoint, it was, uh, I want to say like this, that summer. And it was super speculative because it's like, None of this was actually in practice yet besides Bitcoin. And I'm sure like there was some really early applications on Ethereum. But in terms of just like the ICO era, there was just so much happening coming out every day that like had literally no function and no purpose. And I remember just like seeing white papers and being like, this is going to be the next big thing and, you know, investing money. And then like, <clears throat> you know, that worked for a while. But I'm sure, as you know, like, you know, top of 2018, like it kind of all came crumbling down. Yeah. So Definitely one of the first widespread bull markets, I would say, um, up to 20,000 for, for Bitcoin and 1400 yeah. for ETH. But then, yeah, a big crash falling. I mean, I um, thought I was a genius at that time. I thought I had cracked the code and, you know, I was like, why, why am I in the music industry? Like, this is, this yeah. is way better. Yeah, even everybody else. <laughs> it, it always amazes me that Silk Road actually worked. So like you like did this transaction and then I just, it's just astounding to me that, the fake IDs actually showed up like in your mailbox. Yeah. They, um, I mean, it, there was like a, an honor system. It was like Amazon, to be honest, like there was reviews and. Yeah. I was just going to say that, I, that, that is a, a really interesting point is that they did have a lot of user reviews as I've been told. Um, so you could kind of tell who was legit and who might be sketchy. Yeah. And there was, I mean, it, it was a long time ago, but there was like, even like a mediation process where it's like, 
if you had a dispute with the other party, like somebody could come in and help like solve because everything went into escrow. But yeah, man, it was a it was a crazy time in the Silk Road era. I mean, I think like watching crypto go up so much in 2017 and then go down so much in 2018, like I spent the next three years like researching what the hell it is that I actually bought. Um, because I had all these coins that were going very quickly to zero. Um, But, you know, it comes, you know, here comes like 2019, 2020. I actually wasn't super into Ethereum at the time. I mean, I had some, but I was like definitely a lot. I was chasing like more of like the altcoin stuff and come like DeFi summer and, and all that stuff. Like I started buying up a lot of ETH and just like experimenting like with dApps for the first time, um, DeFi. And I think it just kind of opened my mind to like what was actually possible in terms of like applications and being able to like change. I mean, not only the music industry, but like a lot of industries disrupt pretty much everything. So the context here in the music industry is that streaming was coming up and artists were um, just getting decimated. Like you could have a million of your songs stream and only receive a couple bucks um, from services like Spotify. Um, can, can you talk about that and just sort of um, from your client's point of view about how drastically the economics changed um, and and um, like what, you know, how, just from, from their point of view, like how, how bad did it get? I mean, I think we went from like um, an era where people were going out to the record store and buying albums for 20 bucks. And, you know, we went from that to Napster, which made everything just completely free. And I think the compromise from the record industry was was a solution like Spotify, which was like basically built on the premise that like piracy is inconvenient. And if we can make everything available for 10, 15 bucks a month, like we can recapture some of that, that market. Um, but as a result of that, it's like music starts to become like almost like a, it's kind of like beef. I mean, it becomes like a volume based business or like a, any kind of like commodity where it's like, it's not really about the art. It's not really about a connection with the, the audience or the, the fan or the artist. It's just like a product. And I mean, it always has been, right? But like, I think when you have that kind of economic model around it, like it becomes even more apparent than ever. So I think at the moment, 1 million streams ends up being about four to five grand, depending on you know where the streams came from, if they're paid or free subscribers. Um, but with that, like the entire economic model of being an artist shifts. And I think a lot of the pressure goes towards live performance. Um, so I think there's more pressure than ever to perform live for artists and go out on tour. And I mean, even that's like a very tough business um, from a margins perspective, depending on the size of the artist, because you've got travel, you've got your team, you've got production. You know, at the end of the day, like I think a lot of artists are happy just to break even and get their get their music out there and and tour and get in front of their fans and their audiences. Um, But then enter COVID and it's like suddenly live touring has gone and it's like, what do they have left? You know, there's nothing. Um, And I think, you know, around 2020 when COVID starts to like, you know, first peek its head out, like we didn't really, we didn't really know the extent of like, you know, how long that was going to be dragged out, but fast forward two years and it's like, a lot of artists still haven't toured or played shows since then. So that's a really large part of their business. It's just been kind of taken away. And when did you first connect 
the potential for NFTs to help artists and musicians, um, you know, with your clients and what was going on in the background with the streaming kind of economic shift? Yeah, I mean, so when I, I mean, when I first started looking at NFTs as a model for artists was um, when my my partner Andre, he's an artist by the name of RAC, he started doing some really early NFTs on platforms like Super Rare, just essentially teaming up with like a visual artist, Andres Briesinger, who's incredible, um, and you know they made something that was like I, I would consider art. You know, it was definitely like the more of the fine art model, beautiful like visual incredible music but it was pre-bundled into an nft that was sold on super rare i think at the time it sold for like twenty five thousand dollars, which blew my mind at the time i was like this is this is insane like i've never heard of anything like this before um and andre and i were, were you know we're in a bunch of group chats and you know we then started six down the line but we were we had this group chat that we were chatting with um, you know a lot of artists and a lot of people who come from the crypto space. We've had it for like three or four years, just people from kind of all different creative walks of life, like talking about these concepts. And I remember at the time it was like kind of the center of the universe for for NFTs. Like we had Andre doing his thing, we had Blau um, obviously doing incredible things. People ended up joining, and like it became like this really vibrant hub for just conversation around NFTs and music and like what that looks like, what the future of that is. Um, so I, after seeing Andre do his piece on super rare with Andres, uh, I started doing a lot of like NFTs for my clients. Um, you know, one of my clients vantage was, uh, I think one of like the first five drops on nifty gateway. Mm-hmm. And we teamed him up with an artist called Kidmograph and made some really cool pieces. Um, and we put them up for auction and, um, I think he made like 25 grand, which this is like a, an artist that like probably has never made that kind of money before ever. Yeah. So I know RAC, for example, uses that money to fund his own production costs, right. For his music. So it frees him in a sense from any kind of record contract that he needs maybe, whereas a lot of artists, musicians um, don't have that money, like you said, and, and might need to take a loan, for example, from the record company to actually yeah. pay, pay for the recording. And then those loan terms are terrible, right? Can you, can you just like speak to that, how this like kind of, not only is it cool, but it's like, it's actually kind of freeing these people to um, like fund their own creativity in ways that before yeah, was sure. really, really difficult. I mean, I think like, you know, record labels at some point, I don't know when it happened, um, but at some point, like they kind of just strayed from the path, right? Like, I think the labels, like if you look at like some of the more historic labels, like they traditionally only had like three or four or maybe five big artists that they were pushing at a time. And now it's just, it's like a volume game. It's like, if we can sign X amount of artists and 5% of them blow up, like it covers the cost for the rest of them. Yeah. But the terms, like you said, they're like, they're pretty egregious. It's like, imagine if you went to go buy a house and the bank gives you a loan. And then after you pay off the loan, the bank still owns the house, right? Like that's kind of how a lot of the record label deals are structured. They're, you know, advances on royalties. And a lot of the time, you know, you get like 18, 20% royalty, but the advance is only recoupable generally off of that 18 to 20%. So if they're giving you a hundred grand, but you have a 20% royalty, you have to actually make back $500,000 to recoup that hundred thousand. Um, and then from there, it's like you're sitting behind all the costs of the music videos and marketing, and you generally don't have a lot of control over what money is spent on your behalf. 
Um, and at the end of the day, they still own the masters and, yeah. you know, depending on what you're doing with your publishing, but yeah, I mean the, the concept of, you know, being able to put out NFTs and like earn funding that way, like it kind of democratizes the source of funds that artists can, can get money from. Um, and that gives them a lot more freedom in terms of creativity and, and what they can, what they can be doing. I mean, I think there's a lot of artists out there that like, don't want to go tour and don't want to be, you know, the next Justin Bieber. They just want to make music that they're passionate about that, you know, resonates with an audience of theirs, whether it's big or small. Um, but they don't want to have to be making music and being like, okay, well, Spotify is only playlisting stuff that's this long and it's got to sound like this to be accepted by them so I can get good streams. I mean, I think they can just make music and and cater it to themselves and and their fans and not have to worry about like hitting hitting the algorithm. Um, you know, they've got people out there that will support their art. Yeah, <clears throat> but I thought NFTs were just uh, right-click JPEGs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, um, you know, this is something that, that Andre says really eloquently, but like, I think the idea is like, you know, it's accessible to everybody, but it's it's ownable by few or by one, you know, or like the ownership is scarce, but the accessibility is, I think was always meant to be enjoyed by a large amount of people. Yeah. Um, and I think like, you know, as, as somebody who sometimes collects like more traditional art, like I could, you know, and this is the example everyone uses, but I could buy like a, a Warhol, like print doesn't mean that I can, you know, sell it for a hundred grand or even a better example is like just printing one out from, you know, using my printer and throwing it in a poster. Yeah. Sure. I have it. It doesn't mean that it's like worth anything. Yeah. Um, I think like for music, you know, it's still so early. Like I, it's funny because everybody on Twitter is like, you know, music NFTs are definitely like the hot topic right now, but I don't think anybody really knows what they're doing yet. And I don't think there's a model that I've seen that's incredibly compelling yet. Um, I think we'll get there, but we're still so early that like, I think, you know, we've got kind of like the diverging paths of people that want to like use music NFTs as like fractional ownership, which I think, sure, there's a market there. Uh, and I think from like a investment perspective, it makes a lot of sense. Companies like Royal, et cetera. Um, I think people are going to be a little bit disappointed when they realize how little money music actually makes. Um, I think that's going to be a, a big hurdle to fractional ownership, but I think, you know, it's going to, it's going to take probably a couple of years, but we'll start to see new revenue streams kind of coming up in a more like web three native environment that kind of circumvent DSPs. Yeah. And I mean, Andre, your partner has been in this for so long. I remember I bought his album back in 2016 um, through Ujo, I think. Uh, nice. For Ether. Yeah. And that, that, that's one of my favorite albums to this day. Um, so tell me a little bit, your other partner in six is, is, uh, Jesse Grushak who came through consensus and Uja, like, tell yeah. me, how did you guys all come together? And what, what was there a moment where you're just like, we need to form this agency and this is the right time. Yeah. I mean, we, um, we had been in, in group chats for, you know, several years, but we were kind of like the admins of the group chat, if you will. So we would be kind of chatting and sidebarring all the time. And, you know, Andre was, was getting quite busy with like the NFT stuff. I had started doing it with my clients and it started being pretty successful. Uh, and, and people were seeing that, you know, we were kind of really early and, and understood the space and we were all getting bombarded with calls and texts and emails like every day, like, can you please help us? 
because yeah. um, it's it's a very intimidating space. Like I think a lot of people like they're they're just not quite sure how to navigate this, especially if you've never owned crypto or been involved in anything happening in Web three or or even knew what an NFT was. Yeah, for um, you guys, that's a great really spot to be in. Yeah, so it got to a point where you know we started talking about what if we started like uh, an agency and just helped like take on some projects and do some cool stuff and just help like some of the larger artists too that are getting into it, like do it from a more longevity focused perspective and not like, uh, like how can we smash and grab as much cash as possible? Cause that's like, that, it'd be a net negative for, for everybody if money just keeps leaving the space and never comes back. Right. Yeah. Um, so we had been kind of formulating the, you know, the concept of, you know, teaming up and then Blau and did, his uh, really large, like record-breaking auction. I think he made it was like 13 million or something. Yeah. And that was like on a Sunday. And that Monday we were like, okay, well, today's the day that like everyone's going to try and figure out what NFTs are. <laughs> um, so we just like decided to, I mean, we weren't ready yet. We didn't even have the entity set up yet. We were like in the background getting it set up, but we essentially were like, all right, we're starting this company. It's called, uh, we call it Six Digital originally. And we just like put out a tweet with a, a six? website. Six was, I mean, it was super arbitrary to be honest, but we have uh, our group chat that we all kind of came from was called Chad team six. Um, and we were just like six, whatever web two meets web three, two times three is six. Yeah. Um, and we just kind of ran with it and didn't put, I mean, we put maybe 10 seconds into the name and we were all like, cool. Um, but yeah, we put out that tweet. We had the website that we put up and I think we put Jesse like threw it together in about 20 minutes, uh, set up our email addresses and like just said, hey, we're open for business. Like we'd love to chat with you. Yeah. Um, and we got like, I think 400 plus emails that day, that first day, um, which was a little bit overwhelming, but all types of characters uh, reaching out to us. Like a lot of incredible people across the music industry. And then just a lot of stuff that like, you know, was just funny, like air guitar champions being like, I want to make an NFT. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, we got like the full spectrum. And like, I think from there, it was like, we just hit the ground running. You know, we, we brought on a team to help us kind of field some of the stuff and, and help like set up like the, the entities and all that stuff was happening in the background, but we just like got into, got straight into work mode and I mean, that, that month of like March going into February or into April was just like overwhelming. Cause I think our, our, our calendars were like just 12 hour days, like back to back to back to back to back calls. Yeah. Um, and I think we realized very quickly that like that pace was not super sustainable a from like a, a human level, but also like it just there's not enough time in the day to work on that many things right and not everything is something that we're passionate about so yeah i think we had to definitely like narrow down our criteria in terms of like the projects that we that we look at taking on and from there like we you know there was some really cool shit that came together yeah let's talk about some of that um one of them was uh you guys helped eminem buy a board ape um that seems pretty straightforward um but the one that I think is, is a little more intriguing is uh, the, the saga behind uh, the Wu-Tang Clan, Once Upon a Time in Shaolin. Um, so just like for listeners who don't know, I'll just give a very brief context. Um, this was a, 
talk about an NFT and, and it's a, it's a one of one uh, only printing of, of, of their album, uh, Once Upon a Time in Shaolin. It's a two CD set. It comes with all sorts of restrictions about, you know, you can play it, but only for a certain number of people. You can't like stream it. You couldn't go put it on, you know, at Coachella. So it was uh, in, this, in, in essence, a sort of rebellion against the way that music had become commodified and how digital music was basically deemed to be worthless. So the, the, this, uh, it originally sold for $2 million uh, to uh, Martin Strakelli, who's the guy behind, um, uh, I can't remember the name of his firm, but he's, he's pharma bro, right? And he got busted for like, I mean, securities fraud was what he went away for, but you know, he was like reviled for increasing some drug prices by something like a thousand percent and just doing kind of like some really shady stuff. So he comes out as the uh, owner of this one of a kind um, Wu-Tang album. And then when the feds like seize him and, and take all his property, now it's like the Justice Department owns that Wu-Tang album um, because, you know, he had to, but he needs to sell it to kind of pay off his debts. So now I'm going to let you take it over from here, Gio, because I know there are some things you can and, and a lot of things you can't talk about. Um, but it was basically that you were involved in getting that album out of the government's hands and into a buyer's hands. So what, you want to take it from there? Yeah, that sounds about right. But yeah, I mean, Martin Shkreli was definitely like the the biggest supervillain of of his era before he was arrested. And I think it was interesting to kind of watch like that saga unfold because like, I don't think, I mean, the Wu-Tang Clan definitely didn't know what, like really anything about him um, besides he was the highest bidder. And then I think once he owned this album, he just like really leaned into that, like that, supervillain mentality and was like raising drugs he was like i mean this guy was in congress talking about owning the album but he like it, i mean it was it was a crazy saga that we all kind of watched unfold for like a year or so um but meanwhile like when we started six like jesse and i always kind of referenced that album as like the original nft in the sense because it was like the first model of scarcity in in the digital good yeah and you know, we were talking about it on calls and I think like one day we were just like, whatever happened to that album? Like, where did it go? And, you know, we did, did some research and it's like, oh, well, the Department of Justice has it. Okay. Um, I wonder if we can do something with that. And we ended up getting connected with um, the original producer of the album through a mutual friend. And we just like started talking about the NFT idea and like what, what we wanted to do. And maybe we could get it out of the department of justice and get it into like the hands of like, um, you know, a, a DAO or like even just like an NFT collector, you know, as an NFT. And because him and Riza still owned, you know, like they had some rights on the album. Uh, they kind of had sway over, you know, who was allowed to, purchase it like they had sway over they could influence yeah, they like wanted the to make sure the that sale. the doj kind of adhered to the original rules Correct. set around its um release or or yeah right yeah and that that's why it was like it was with the government for so long because it was like whoever it sold to had to kind of follow that that same agreement that martin had um and i can't talk too much about the agreement but there's like you said there's a lot of restrictions around like security you know like leak protection like making sure that it's not ending up on spotify or like you know 
drop in a Dropbox link somewhere. Yeah. Um, because that kind of takes away the magic of, of the album. Um, so, so how did, um, how did Pleaser uh, Dow come into the equation? Where was that just, did you go around to people in the, in the, uh, in the crypto community who you thought would maybe be into this and yeah, they were I mean, one we of them? To, we spoke to maybe 20 plus people. And I mean, we couldn't, at first, we couldn't really tell them like what it was that we were even selling. Like we needed them generally just to sign an NDA and it got it's always tricky. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, it's like, hey, we've got this thing. We can't tell you what it is. Um, unless you like are wanting to spend like, you know, four or five, six million bucks. Um, but we promise it's going to break the internet, right? <laughs> so we had like months and months and months of conversations. Um, and, you know, eventually it was whittled down to just a few people. And, you know, Pleaser Dow ultimately was, was victorious, but it took, you know, probably about six months of um, just negotiation on, on all sides uh, to actually get this to a place where we could get the album out of the Department of Justice and get it to the Dow. Um, and for people who and don't I, know, Pleaser Dow, uh, it, it basically pools its, its users' money or its members' money together to buy projects like this. Like they bought the NFT of the original Doge um, the, or the original NFT, Doge NFT, and then fractionalized it. So like you could own a, a very small percentage of that for like a dollar, right? And so- yeah that that's that's uh, for anybody who doesn't know the background there what um what's the latest on what they're doing with it do you do you know anything of of what their plans you know, are I'm, I'm not sure and I, I know that like they want to try and make it as accessible as possible i think that they're like they're kind of they're working with with rizza and, and stuff to try and like figure out what they can and can't do um but I'm not sure what they what they've got planned. I mean, I know that they I mean, they hosted a um, a listening party in New York when I was there for NFT NYC. So I actually did get to hear it with uh, with Jesse. What was it like? I mean, it was I don't want to take away from the magic of the album. I will say that, like, it was definitely sounded like a, you know, tried and true Wu-Tang album. Um, And for me, it's like the concept is always going to kind of supersede the content. You know, I think for me, it was super important and exciting just because it's like conceptually, it's like it's it's thought of like in a contemporary art manner of like the scarcity is what kind of makes it beautiful. Um, And also the mystery over the past six, seven, eight years, however long it's been at this point, like I think that's all kind of factored into the allure of the album. Um, But at the core, it's a really, you know, really good album. yeah, Long. the story is so <laughs> integral to it. It's really cool. Yeah, and that story is like, you know, like people are always like, well, why don't they release it? And I'm like, if if I ended up on Spotify, like nobody would be talking about it in two years, you know? Like we'd all listen to it one time, tweet about it, and then we'd all move on. And it's like the story would be over. Yeah. So I think like that, that mystery is always going to be what kind of gives it value. Yeah. What's next for you guys at six? What are you excited about and where do you think things are headed? I, I do, and I guess to that question, do you think the NFT market is kind of cooling off or are we in a transit transitional phase here from what we saw like when you were got like it was absolute madness in March, April 2021, right? When things just kind of and it didn't really slow down. Do you are you seeing a shift there and like any kind of um, new direction? 
It's hard to say, man, because it's like, it, you know, there's a lot of macro factors at play at the moment with the crypto market as a whole, you know, with what's going on in Europe and, and just the general economic situation. But I think, um, I think we've still got a little bit more, more gaps in the tank for NFTs. You know, I think we're still definitely in like a price discovery mode with a lot of projects and like, there's going to be, a, I think, a big reckoning at some point where, you know, the, the money will kind of flow towards the blue chips, if you will, and like more fundamental based investing. But at the moment, I think people are still, you know, the market's still trying to mature and, and grow and like really understand where the value derives for a lot of these projects. I think we're seeing projects that are doing a little bit more than just like PFPs being, you know, pretty successful. And I mean that in the sense of like, not just here's an NFT, like here's an NFT and it unlocks this and that and this, um, and, you know, has some sort of future utility. I think that's a brand new model that like hasn't even had a chance to really play out yet in terms of gaming NFTs and metaverse plays. Um, yeah, that's so what's think, so fascinating about this yeah. space in general is that the technology is there, like, and the ICO technology obviously was originally the ERC-20 token, right, on Ethereum. It led to a whole bunch of scams, but it also created a brand new way to raise capital for your startup that didn't exist before. That's still there yeah. and was kind of built upon to, to create the DeFi summer stuff we saw a few years later. There were improvements on the ERC, you know, like the 721 token. And now I think we're going to see the same thing with NFTs, like the baseline technology is there. It's not going away. And now that it's proven itself, people are going to have like new, they're going to bring new things to it so that you like something that you never could have thought of in March of 2021 is going to be commonplace in the NFT space in like six months or something. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just, it's still incredibly early for the majority of this stuff. I think, you know, similar to the ICO era, like we're going to start seeing a lot of scams and we already are, you know, we're seeing stuff that like is raising absurd amounts of money off literally no fundamentals and an anonymous team. Yeah. Uh, and maybe some of those will pan out and some of them won't. Um, but I think it's also an incredible fundraising mechanism for people that are actually like capable of building the things that they're, that they're promising. So I think, it, you know, at the core, you got to just do your own research and due diligence. And like, it's easy to kind of get caught up in like the mania cycle. But I think if you really stick to like fundamentals and invest in good people, like you'll probably be okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's incredibly valuable right now for anyone who already has an audience or, you know, is like definitely has a platform or owns their own IP. Uh, it's just it's almost just like money that's just waiting, sitting there waiting to be kind of created. I'm also really excited to get to the point where we can stop saying it's really early. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I, think, yeah, I totally agree. I think we're almost there. Stuff, but I've been hearing that for like six years and it's like, let's, let's get to the mid phase here or something. Yeah, you know? no, I hear you, man. I think, um, well, we're early in, in different things, right? I think we're no longer early in, in certain other things. Like I think crypto as a whole is no longer early. Um, yeah, that's a good I point. think, I think NFTs are still incredibly early because like we're still figuring out what these do and like why, and like all the different things that we can do with them. I mean, I think, the the thing that nobody really expected was that like community like the concept of community was going to be such a like value driving factor for a lot of these projects 
Um, yeah, it reminds me of like what Seth Goldstein's doing over with Bright Moments, you know, like yeah. connecting the real world experience with an NFT and actually doing that in cities all around the world. Uh, it's, it, you know, that's really fucking cool. Totally. And I think like early on when the Bored Apes and stuff came out, like, I don't think anybody really expected them to, to be what they are now, but it just goes to show if you have a group of people that are kind of like-minded that are building towards the same thing. It's like things like that can happen. Can it happen again? I don't know. We'll see, I guess. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not sure what the next board ape is or if there will be one, but I think um, the trend is, is, is still definitely like around those types of PFP projects. And I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of these teams being able to really pull off cool stuff once they're, you know, once they've made some money and, you know, as long as they've got a good team of people working the the projects and like trying to add value to the people who are buying these NFTs, like I think we're going to still see a lot of innovation. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, Gio, this has been really great. Thank you so much for coming on. Really fascinating conversation. Yeah, and uh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. And and good luck. Good luck with everything you're doing. Um, I'll put some info about six in the show notes and and some links to to Gio and, and other things that we talked about. And so um, that's it for this one. But thanks a lot, Gio. Thank you so much, man. Take care. Yeah, you too. Bye. That's it for this episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for listening. Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at decential.io. That's D-E-C-E-N-T-I-A-L dot I-O and on Twitter at Decential. Have a great day.